welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. People of the Pod will be off next week as AJC prepares for its annual virtual global forum. To find out more, go to ajc.org slash global forum. We'll link to it in our show notes. But first, have European, Israeli, and American policymakers learned anything since signing the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran Nuclear Agreement? Sefi sat down earlier this week with AJC Jerusalem Director Avital Leibovich, AJC Transatlantic Institute Director Daniel Schwamenthal, and AJC Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer Jason Isaacson to analyze what the next few months could bring during a special live recording. Here's a portion of that conversation. We have a critical topic today and a lot of ground to cover with our AJC experts, so let's jump right in. Jason, I'm turning to you to set the table for us, please. In 2015, after a long process, AJC ultimately decided to come out against the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal, or the JCPOA. In 2018, when President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the nuclear deal, we expressed our disappointment there as well. Can you start us off by pulling back the curtain a bit on, A, what went into our initial 2015 opposition, and B, why we didn't believe withdrawing from the deal was the right move either? Thank you for your question, Seppi. Very much looking forward to our conversation today. We were very concerned about the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action for a number of reasons. But first, I should say, we we spent some time examining it quite closely with then-Secretary of State John Kerry, with the chief negotiator for the United States, Wendy Sherman, both of whom came to AJC's offices in New York to discuss this with our board. Our feeling was that the deal fell far short of what had been expected and what had been, in a sense, promised by the administration. It did not cover a range of other threats that Iran posed in addition to its nuclear program. On the nuclear program itself, it didn't stop Iran from ultimately being able to develop the nuclear weapons capability. It slowed the process down, absolutely. Uh, It removed uranium, enriched uranium that Iran had stockpiled. It forced them to make certain adjustments to their centrifuges that they'd had. But down the road, and not very far down the road, in 10 years or 15 years, Iran would be able to climb right back into that program quite aggressively. It did not inhibit them from R&D on advanced centrifuges, uh, it really left a lot of doors open, and that concerned us greatly, in addition to not addressing other issues, regional aggression by Iran, the ballistic missile program of Iran. So for all of these reasons, and the timelines, and the inspections that fell short of what we thought were adequate, we came out against the deal. Now, the deal went into effect anyway because of this bizarre congressional review mechanism that was adopted at the time. There's a presidential election, the Democrat loses, the Republican wins, Donald Trump made it very clear throughout the campaign that he was opposed to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And within a year or so of taking office, he indicated that he was going to remove the United States from the deal. Actually, that took place in May 2018 is when the announcement came. And then in the fall, the United States was officially out of the deal. But before doing so, for the first year or more than a year of the Trump administration, there was an effort to bring European allies on board with a tougher version of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a way to kind of amend the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in cooperation with our European allies. 
that was the debate over whether to nix the deal or to fix the deal. Exactly. And some progress apparently was made, but not sufficient progress. And so in May, the president announced that the United States was withdrawing. At that point, HAC had been on record against the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but we were especially concerned about this division within the alliance. And we thought that it was better to try to work together with our European allies to fix the deal than just for the United States unilaterally to withdraw, which might open the door to other aggression and other transgressions regarding the deal's uh, details itself by the Iranians. And that, of course, is what ultimately happened. Now we're in a different ballgame. I know that's going to be the subject of this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Daniel, we knew in 2015 that Iran's leaders couldn't be trusted. We knew that they had long coveted nuclear power despite their protestations to the contrary. And we knew that they were a destabilizing force in the region with a measure of control in four Arab capitals. You are a astute Iran watcher. What additional data do you see today? What additional data do we have today about Iran's behavior subsequent to the JCPOA? And should we be more or less concerned about Iran today than we were in in the run-up to the deal in 2015? Everything the supporters of the nuclear deal promised us turned out to be a a mirage and everything the opponents of the deal said would happen did come unfortunately true. Instead of moderating the Iranian regime as the Obama administration had hoped or claimed, the Islamic Republic only intensified both its internal oppression and external aggression following the deal. No matter what metric you apply, everything got worse. Executions of minors, dissidents, and gays, and oppression in Iran skyrocketed while Iran equipped Hezbollah with guided missiles, assisted in the massacres in in Syria, where it also has now established a very threatening foothold. It supports the Houthis in Yemen, which are attacking Saudi Arabia almost every day, armed and funded Hamas and, of course, Islamic Jihad in Gaza, and so on. We also have the documents, the uh, I mean, this huge archive, the um, Israel's Mossad spirited out of Tehran, which proved that Iran actually never gave up its nuclear weapons program, and not before and not after the JCPOA, which is why I believe that re-entering the JCPOA will be nothing short of a strategic disaster. We already can see what Iran, under pressure, under tremendous sanctions, is doing, and, and everything that will happen after it will get the sanctions lifted and uh, be funded with hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't need a crystal ball to imagine how much more the region will be on fire and how much more dangerous the region will be, particularly for Israel, but also for the Arab states that are equally threatened and feel threatened by Iran. And the problem with the JCPOA is not, as also Jason explained, that it doesn't really stop nuclear Iran. It actually guarantees that it will become a nuclear threshold power and then with international legitimacy. And the problem is, furthermore, that the JCPOA not only doesn't deal with Iran's aggression, it makes it almost impossible, actually, to deal with it because the logic of the JCPOA is that Iran must economically benefit from it. This is also what the Europeans have been saying for a long time, and this is what the Biden administration is now saying as well. And therefore, 
the Biden administration seems to be ready to lift even non-nuclear sanctions, sanctions imposed on Iran because of its support for terrorism, because they are considered to be inconsistent, incompatible with the JCPOA. So if you take off these kinds of sanctions as well, then you remove the most important non-military tool the U.S. would have to push back against Iran's aggression. And in addition to that, the chance that the Biden administration would be able to agree a longer and stronger deal also becomes almost inconceivable once you remove all sanctions and then signal that you will not reimpose those sanctions because those would be incompatible with the JCPOA, then it really is difficult to imagine why Iran would agree on a stronger deal. So I'm, I'm very worried about the future. Avital, there's been this kind of bipolar situation in Israel between the military on the one hand and the politicians on the other hand, with many retired IDF top brass saying in 2015 and since, in effect, you know, we can work with this deal, it's better than nothing, while on the political side, almost the entire spectrum, regardless of ideology, says the deal is a mistake from basically all the way to the left to certainly all the way to the right. What accounts for that kind of contradiction between what we hear from the military and what we hear from the politicians? Because, you know, that was certainly utilized by the Obama administration and by some Jewish groups in favor of the JCPOA in 2015. It was utilized by them to help sell the deal. So what are we looking at there? Yeah, so it's, of course, a little bit complicated than just, you know, a contradiction between brass and politicians and allow me to reflect you know, where this paradox or contradiction emanates from. So basically, Ariel Sharon, one of the former prime ministers of Israel, followed by Ehud Holmert, they actually adopted a policy which was based on establishing some sort of a strategic partnership with the U.S. on the nuclear Iran issue. And this would have allowed Israel to promote its own interests. Basically, this kind of strategic pact between Israel and the U.S., which Sharon and Ehud Olmert believed in, would have three goals from an Israeli perspective. Number one is to make sure that the international community will operate very severe sanctions against Iran to deter Iran from promoting the nuclear plan. Number two, and this is quite interesting because I don't think many remember, is actually an American support for different kinds of operations, usually secret operations, in order to prevent Iran from reaching its nuclear capabilities, basically to delay Iran. That included like the, uh, what's it called, Operation Olympic Games, which led to Stuxnet, that famous cyber attack on the Iranian reactors. Well, according to foreign sources, it included <laughs> a lot more than just uh, that specific operation. And the third goal, Sefi, was that Israel will be compensated by the U.S. should Iran be nuclear by different elements, mainly dealing with its security and strategic. Mayor Dagan, by the way, who was the head of the Mossad between 2002 and 2011, actually supported those pinpoint secret operations on the ground, which, by the way, Israel did not take responsibility for in those years. 
So what happened? Netanyahu took his position as prime minister in 2009. And when he stepped into office, he actually changed the policy. And how did he change the policy? He determined that the Iranian nuclear plan is the most severe existential threat on Israel. And let me remind our viewers that Ehud Barak at the time was Netanyahu's minister of defense. And he supported Netanyahu's specific policy. And therefore, the Israeli government at those times actually gave a huge chunk of its budget to some kind of a military preparation. I can even remind the viewers that in summer 2012, if you remember, Netanyahu and Barack, both of them in their public appearances, even gave some sort of an impression that Israel is about to attack Iran, was preparing to attack Iran. It was quite vivid, vivid descriptions. I can also remind the viewers that President Paris at the time actually rejected this kind of move. And at the end of the day, we all know that no attack took place. And many of the Israeli commentators actually analyzing Netanyahu's personality think that he will not, he would never have taken the risk to go ahead with such an attack. So since then, since 2012 and until now, 2021, the issue of attacks actually went off the table. After the agreement in 2015, we began to hear different noises. And again, I'm coming here to the contradiction Steffi you mentioned. The former IDF chief of staff Eisenkot, for example, said that the agreement was actually the best alternative the JCPOA 2015 was the best alternative from all the others because this would have given Israel, according to his assessment, 10 to 15 years of quiet. Now, Netanyahu, on the other hand, along other politicians, and I'll get to that in a minute, actually um, said something else. I mean, according to Netanyahu, this agreement did nothing to change the Iranian policy, to turn it into more moderate. And he was referring to the regional Iranian involvement. Because as you know, here in Israel and on the borders, we have a huge presence of Iran, whether it's on Syria with militia, with Al-Quds force, whether it's in Iraq, uh, Shiite militias, whether it's with Hezbollah and whether it's with Hamas. So this is something that uh, Netanyahu wasn't willing to hear. I can tell you that ever since then, until today, six years have passed, and most of the politicians in Israel actually accepted Netanyahu's position, namely Iran being the main existential threat for Israel, whether it's a left-wing party or a right-wing party. This is the evolution of the Iranian policy in Israel in the last 15 years. Of course, for the past two weeks or so, certainly over this month of May, we in America and Jews all around the world have been transfixed by what's going on in Israel. Our hearts go out to you, of course, you and our colleagues in our Jerusalem office know that. We also saw Hamas deploy weapons supplied by Iran, rockets, of course, as usual, also drones, which was fairly new for Hamas. How did this month's conflict, how did it shape sentiments in Israel about a prospective future deal or, or re-entry to the deal, you know, to, to, to what extent is there still a sense that this kind of a deal is, as Eisenkot said, a good option for delaying the potential of a nuclear Iran? So in order to uh, answer your question, I think it will be interesting to understand the security concept of Israel and what does it rely on? 
There are actually five pillars for the security concept of Israel. Number one is deterrence, which basically means that the other side or the enemy side is deterred by certain capabilities which Israel has. The second pillar is prevention and influence. Basically, the idea is to lessen the threats by different kinds of actions of operations. The third pillar of Israel's security perception is intelligence. Of course, tactic level, strategic level, etc. The fourth pillar of the Israeli security perception is defense. And you mentioned the recent operation in Gaza, and definitely the defense was a huge part of the capability to live here and really to survive. I'm talking about different layers of defense, by the way, not only physical defense, which is anti-aircraft like the Iron Dome batteries, which had 90% success rate in interception, but I'm also talking about uh, cyber defense, for example, uh, more virtual defense, if you like, because the home front or the civilian world is becoming more and more prone to attacks. And the fifth pillar of Israel's security concept is determination or victory. Basically, the capability to bring the other side to determination and to declare victory. These are the five concepts. And when you look at these five pillars, you can really understand how Israel is preparing for a possible nuclear Iran. You mentioned some sort of an example of an operation in Iran, and there are different sources who claim that Israel is operating on the ground. Israel doesn't take responsibility for these kind of operations. There is an understanding that Iran understands very clearly the capabilities of Israel. And you mentioned the recent conflict in Gaza, and there is no doubt that Hamas, as well as Hezbollah in Iran, watched closely how Israel operated in Gaza, whether it was able to deal with a barrage of 130 rockets within a few minutes, whether the Israeli aircrafts were precise in their targets, and so on and so forth. So the bottom line is that there is no change from an Israeli perspective. Iran is still the existential threat, the number one existential threat for Israel. But the change from 2015 to today is that there was another layer added. And that layer is the strategic weapons that Iran supplies our neighbors, enemies in the region, and also has the capability to develop them themselves. Look, we saw in Gaza, many factories, some were based on Iranian know-how, even factories for drones that were based on Iranian know-how. So the knowledge of terror doesn't stop at the borders of Iran. And definitely it has spilled in a very wide manner to our region. Daniel, you're our eyes and ears in Brussels. Talk to us about where Europe stands today. In 2015, as I recall, under President Hollande, France was seen as more hawkish on Iran than the Obama administration. And, and the UK and Germany were less so, as I recall. Germany in particular, I remember, as being seen as eager to engage economically with Iran. What's the lay of the land with regard to those European powers today? How eager are they to get the U.S. back into the deal? And to what extent do they have an appetite 
to build on the original deal, to strengthen it, to lengthen it, as the Biden administration has been talking about, now that some of its shortcomings have been made clear. The U.S. withdrawal from the deal for the previous two years, uh, the German government specifically late last year suddenly toughened its message. German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas said something like a return to the previous agreement would not be enough. There will have to be some kind of nuclear agreement plus. His state secretary even threatened sanctions to counter Iran's aggression and ballistic missiles program. So there seemed to be a situation where, at least rhetorically, Europe had become much, much tougher. It also coincided with the murder of a French-based journalist who was lured into Iran and then executed. The French foreign ministry tweeted uh, that this was a barbaric killing and a fix quite interesting. So the hashtag no business as usual. And I think the Biden administration would have had an opportunity to build on this, at least rhetorically much, much tougher European position to come together and negotiate together with the European a better deal. I think it would have also definitely gotten the support from the other side of the aisle and would have made American foreign policy a little bit more coherent in that sense. Unfortunately, the Biden administration decided to first re-enter the JCPOA and then trying to attempt to negotiate a better deal, which, as I said earlier, I don't think is, is really possible. And so at this stage, the Europeans are, you know, quite happy with the U.S. decision. One can really not rely in these situations on the Europeans to taking very, very strong initiatives unless it really comes from Washington, uh, where they might be willing to support a tougher position. But it's going to be very difficult to imagine a situation where the Europeans will now be able to push the U.S. in a certain direction. So I think it comes back down to the whole sequencing of the negotiations. If you re-enter the deal, lift all the sanctions, then it really almost doesn't matter what your intentions are because the Iranians will simply not agree to a better deal after having received all the carrots up front. Staying with you for a moment, Daniel, the AJC Transatlantic Institute, which you direct based in Brussels, TAI has played a critical role in launching TFI, the Transatlantic Friends of Israel, your brainchild, bringing together parliamentarians from across Europe, along with their counterparts in the U.S. Congress, to press for policies that advance Israel's security and Middle East peace. To what extent have you seen attitudes about Israel and the regional threats it faces, including especially this Iranian threat with which we're concerned right now? To what extent have you seen those attitudes resonating among elected officials in Europe? Definitely, we have seen a shift among certain lawmakers. Our network has now grown to over 120 lawmakers from across Europe, mostly across Europe, but also North Americans. And it is really a network of people, of politicians who come from across the political spectrum, but are united in the belief that Israel is really a strategic partner. Its relationship is anchored in shared values, interests, and history. And more and more politicians in Europe realize the tremendous value that Israel brings to the table as a leader in technology, innovation, and security. 
And within the European Union, particularly the members from the former communist bloc and also Greece and Cyprus, generally have not only strengthened their relationship with Israel, but also tend to have a better understanding of Israel's uh, security situation. They do also recognize the threat posed by Iran, but unfortunately, that doesn't translate into any real doubt or opposition to the uh, nuclear deal. There never really has been a proper discussion in Europe about the deal. As soon as there is a diplomatic breakthrough of any kind, there tends to be in Europe an almost automatic embrace. So unlike in the United States, where in 2014, 15, in the run-up to the deal, there was a really intense debate on the opinion pages of the newspapers, among think tanks, experts, and so forth, Nothing of the kind has really happened. So Europeans, even those who may be sympathetic to Israel, may not, are not necessarily as informed about the nuclear deal, particularly its flaws as their American counterparts. Just, just very quickly, because I must get Jason back in on this conversation, I just want to follow up with you. There's this consistent kind of debate about whether Israel is getting more isolated in the world or less isolated in the world. And of course, you know, we look at the Abraham Accords, which I'm going to ask Jason about in, in just a minute. And certainly, you know, in the Arabian Gulf region, I think we could say Israel is getting less isolated. We look at what has happened in the U.S. over the past couple of weeks, and perhaps we worry that Israel is getting more isolated. Daniel, when you look at Europe, and maybe I'll make a, a divide here between the European street and the European elite, do you think Israel's stock is rising or falling in each of those two places? It's very good that you make this distinction. Certainly, as I laid out, among policymakers in certain countries uh, and among certain political parties, more on the center-right, that really wants to get closer to Israel, understands Israel better, values Israel. And we have seen this also in the growing network of the transatlantic friends of Israel. Of course, this war also showed that Europeans really support Israel in, to a much greater extent in these kinds of situations. This is not the first war that Israel fought with Gaza, but I think the support that we have seen here was quite unprecedented. We have seen the Germans, Slovak and Czech and also Greek foreign ministers traveling to Israel in a, in a show of solidarity. These kinds of things didn't happen in these kinds of last confrontations. But of course, the narrative, the demonization that is going on, particularly in the media, and specifically in British and uh, American media, has an impact, will have an impact, unfortunately. The constant barrage of NGO reports that are completely biased and demonize Israel as a serial international law violator, as a uniquely wicked country, will unfortunately have an impact on the public, but also on the public policymakers. Even if they don't believe it, even if they reject it personally, it will make it so much more difficult for them to show their support. So AJC will have a lot, a lot of work to strengthen the spines of our friends and to win new friends and the transatlantic friends of Israel as part of it. Thank you, Daniel. Avital, what's the Israeli perspective on that same question? Is, is Jerusalem working closely with the folks in Manama and Abu Dhabi to counter Iran? Yeah, it's a great question, Steffi. Let's uh, reflect for a minute uh, on what happened since the normalization agreements were signed. So in the past 10 months, there were visits of two foreign ministers, the Emirati foreign minister and the Bahraini foreign minister in Israel. The uh, ministers of finance of both countries also visited Israel. 
the uh, Bahraini in industry minister visited Israel with a delegation of 40 businessmen. The uh, Chamber of Commerce and the Export Institute signed agreements with their equivalents in the, in the Emirates. There was a technology exhibition, a huge one in Dubai. More than 400 Israeli businessmen and women traveled there. There was also a cyber tech kind of exhibition in Dubai. We know that there's going to be an expo 2021 in, starting from October, which Israel will have an exhibit there. Of course, the official diplomatic representations in Israel were opened in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai and in Manama. The Emirati embassy has been opened in Israel. And a few more other interesting things took place, which I'm sure viewers are interested to hear about. For example, in December 2020, Israel joined for the first time the International Security Alliance called ISA. And this alliance is basically a combination of ministries of uh, internal security from the Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Spain, Italy, Slovakia. And the rationale behind this is to actually cooperate on different internal security and also exchange information in order to enrich each country's knowledge. I assume that the next stage that we can expect in these relations is some kind of a security cooperation, for example, joint military exercises. We've just seen, by the way, last month in April, a joint exercise which took place in Greece, and we've seen fighter jets from the Emirates flying next to Israeli jets, American jets, French Spanish and Cypriot. And if you look closely, this is exactly to answer your question, if you look closely at the goal, what was the goal of this specific exercise last month, you can understand how we share the same kind of threats. The goal was actually to exercise different kinds of aerial battles, talking about threats of missiles, which are ground-to-air missiles, and also fighting in enemy territory. So just to summarize, the way I see it is that the Emirates and Israel have a lot of potential to continue and have joint exercise and trainings also in the field of cyber. Not everything has to do with aircrafts and other issues. Exchange of information, different kinds of information, especially we are seeing now the maritime trend, the Iranian maritime trend of attacking Israeli vessels. And of course, I mentioned the ISA. And this is, I think, quite a long list for a very short time of normalization. Thank you, Avital. So here's my last question. Jason, say a word about the Washington insider perspective here. Senator Chuck Schumer was a prominent opponent of the JCPOA in 2015. He's now the Senate Majority Leader. Senator Bob Menendez was also very opposed in 2015. He now runs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So that's a couple of very significant potential roadblocks for the administration on the Senate side of the Capitol. And then I'm very much, very much an amateur vote counter here. Uh, but with the Democratic majority in the House so thin, I just don't see a majority of House members who would vote for, you know, just any sanctions relief package. So what's the view from the Hill going forward on this issue? Thank you, Sefi. I mean, I think if you conducted votes today in the House and the Senate, you would not get a majority in support of rejoining the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. 
there are concerns that are expressed in, uh, on both sides of the aisle. But what is especially notable, of course, is the democratic opposition, democratic skepticism. Now, at the same time, you have a young democratic administration and a Senate majority leader, 50-50 split Senate, who will not want a black eye delivered to the administration. And so it's an open question how Congress will deal with this. Congress has a number of options, but so does the administration. The Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act of 2015 created a framework in which Congress would review a new agreement with Iran. But the question that the administration needs to grapple with, and members of Congress are looking at this closely as well, is whether rejoining the 2015 agreement is a new agreement. It's not clear from the legislation that it would apply to a hiatus, a pause in U.S. compliance with the agreement and rejoining it, whether that would therefore set off this congressional review process. So if they get around that, maybe Congress won't even have a voice. Now, there has been legislation introduced in Congress to block the relief of sanctions. I expect a lot more of that if this process moves forward. But it's also possible that if the administration really does want to change anything in the 2015 agreement, and of course there have been signals saying that they don't, they want to start with 2015, then ultimately go to a, a second follow-on agreement, whether that's even conceivable. And we've heard uh, Daniel's quite sharp views on that as well. And there are many who believe that it's not going to be possible to have a stronger agreement after you've rejoined 2015. But if the administration's attempt is to stick with 2015 as it is, it's not longer and stronger. It's not longer deadlines. It's not more inspections. And they may be able to get that through a Congress without a review, but there will be outrage on Capitol Hill, and they're going to have to deal with it. Thank you, Jason. I just want to thank our panelists, uh, Jason, Abital, and Daniel, and now uh, turn the floor over to AJC CEO David Harris for an important closing message. Steffi, thank you. And allow me, if I may, to, um, to fell, to use a wonderful Yiddish word. I'm not sure how many non-governmental organizations anywhere much less in the Jewish world, could have this kind of high-level, thoughtful, nuanced discussion on one of the most important policy questions facing the United States, Israel, uh, the Jewish community, and the larger world. So my hat off, so to speak, Sefi, to you for moderating, and to you, Jason, and Daniel, and Avital, for conducting this conversation. I just want to bring, if I may, in the closing minutes, my own perspective and go back for a few moments to 2015, the year of the JCPOA. We were quite involved in conversations with the administration and with many others uh, here in the United States, in Europe, in Israel, and elsewhere in trying to understand the deal before offering our own view. And indeed, when the deal was announced formally on July the 14th, 2015 from Vienna, you could see kind of how things fell out. Those who sided with the Obama administration on just about anything very quickly endorsed the deal. Those who opposed the Obama administration on just about anything quickly opposed the deal. But I doubt very much that any of them really had the chance to read the deal in all of its complexity and length, understand it, and reach their own independent conclusion. We, AJC, not being partisan, not being ideologically driven, understood that there was a responsibility 
to act appropriately, which meant that we took more than three weeks gathering our lay and staff leadership together, consulting with a variety of politicians and experts here and around the world. And only after 23 days did we express our view. And I think one of the reasons, if I may say so, why our view was taken seriously in many quarters was precisely because people understood that at AJC, we were not going to act robotically or reflexively based on political or partisan instinct. Our position at the end of those 23 days was to oppose the deal. And I'm particularly proud of the position of the statement that we drafted, both because of its detail and its nuance, but also because of its respect for the drafters. We ended up with a different conclusion, but nonetheless, we attributed good intentions, goodwill to those on behalf of the Obama administration and the other countries involved. Why did we end up opposing it? And I think it's extremely relevant to the conversation now in 2021 that we've just heard. The essential reasons were, number one, we opposed it because the concept on which the deal was based in our judgment was illusory. It was a kind of self-delusion. We allowed ourselves to believe as a nation, and I heard this with my own ears from the very top U.S. officials, the notion was that this would be a transformational deal, that this was a deal that was going to empower the so-called reformists or moderates in Tehran at the expense of the radical revolutionary regime. I even heard with my own ears, some suggest that Rouhani, the president of Iran, viewed as a moderate, could become the Gorbachev of Iran, bringing about dramatic domestic change for the better. So the original notion was this big, ambitious concept, which ultimately proved wrong. The second concern we had was the expiration dates. The expiration dates were just too soon. As Daniel Schwamethal said, we already have passed the expiration date last October for the legal purchase and sale of conventional weapons by Iran. The fact that they may not have enough money does not obviate the fact that now legally, Iran can go on to the arms market. Number three, the deal was too narrow. The deal did not include ballistic missiles. It did not include advanced uh, research on centrifuges. There were a number of major issues that were not included, not even to speak about regional behavior from support for Hamas to support for Hezbollah to support for the Houthis in Yemen to interference in Iraq, in Syria, and Lebanon. Those things were not part of the deal. And fourth, the deal did not include serious, sustained consultation with our Arab allies in the region and with Israel. It was largely done to their exclusion, even though these countries, on the one hand, certainly had points of view that needed to be listened to, given their proximity, and number two, given the stakes that these countries had in any such deal, and yet they were excluded. And the last concern that we had was that this was going to be a largely partisan decision. In other words, if you go back to 2015 and the comments that Jason made, at the end of the day, not one single Republican, either in the House or the Senate, supported the deal. To the contrary, there were four Democratic senators who openly opposed the deal, 
And there were a number of Democratic congressmen who also opposed the deal. Our view is that if it's going to happen again, and in 2021, we're going to end up with this partisan divide, then once again, we're going to have an unstable American policy where this administration, for example, re-enters the deal. And by the way, Secretary Blinken said as much yesterday on the Fareed Zakaria show on CNN, that it is the American goal to re-enter the deal as it was negotiated. And then from inside the deal, try for the second phase. But if that's the case, I think we know a priori Republicans are likely to oppose it unanimously. And what happens then if the Republicans take control of the House or the Senate in 2022 or the White House in 2024? I'm now speaking not as a partisan, but this country, the most powerful country on earth, cannot have this kind of erratic, unstable foreign policy, which is strictly along partisan lines. We saw the price that was paid from 2015 to 2018, and we should not want to repeat it. So my final word is that from the perspective of AJC, the thoughtful analysis we brought in 2015, the thoughtful analysis that all our viewers heard over the last hour from, from Sefi and Jason and Daniel and Avital is the kind of analysis we will continue to bring, nonpartisan, independent, in consultation with a range of, of people uh, in Washington and beyond in order to try and ensure that we see the best possible outcome. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Sefi, at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the Kardashians. We never talk about the Kardashians. In the 20 seasons, that's right, 20 seasons the show Keeping Up with the Kardashians has aired, I have not kept up with a single episode. I have, I confess, followed the romance between Kim Kardashian West and her husband Kanye. But this week, Kim Kardashian West got pummeled on social media for borrowing an insanely inflammatory, controversial post and sharing it with her hundreds of millions of followers. That post? A message saying in part, both Israelis and Palestinians deserve to live in peace and safety. Can you imagine? Who does she think she is? That's crazy. To make matters worse, last month, Kardashian, whose father was Armenian-American, thanked President Biden for calling the Ottoman Empire's systematic murder of one million ethnic Armenians a genocide. After more than a century of fighting for truth and acknowledgement, today the Armenian people receive the recognition we have all been hoping and praying for, she wrote. Critics called her post about peace and safety for all in the Middle East hypocrisy. How could she insist that the systematic murder of a million Armenians was a genocide and then call for the killing to stop in the Middle East, on both sides. In some bizarre calculation that I struggle to understand, condemning a genocide and calling for peace and safety don't align. This was not the first time that Kardashian got into hot water for supporting peace in the Middle East. In 2012, she posted that she was praying for both Israelis and Palestinians, then deleted the posts amid the uproar. Sadly, this post has disappeared too which is unfortunate, because I would like for the debate to continue. I'd like to hear how Kardashian responds, just so I can try to understand where critics are coming from. Her post ends with this. 
Anyone trying to convince you that one must come at the expense of the other does not support human rights for all humans. This seems like a perfectly reasonable point. Why should peace have to come at the expense of anyone's safety? It shouldn't. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi? Well, it occurred to me the other day that actually there's always a very good reason to hate Jews. Oh, boy. When you think about it, throughout the Middle Ages, they killed our Lord and Savior is a fantastic reason to hate Jews within the context of a world that was principally focused around religion. So for nearly 2,000 years, until AJC got the Catholic Church to change its doctrine, that was the main reason for anti-Semitism. There were other reasons too, and they were always good ones. If you really believe that Jews are spreading the plague, it makes sense to hate them. If everyone you know is poor and you believe that the Jews are rich, that's a good reason to hate Jews. If you think the Jews are killing Christian children to make matzah, that is a great reason to hate Jews. Then, a century and a half ago, as Europe entered the age of nationalism, a new slew of very good reasons to hate Jews came about. Think about it. If you're determined to see France or Russia or Germany rise and lead the world, and you think that the only thing standing between your nation and glory are the pesky Jews, then why wouldn't you hate them? And then came 1948, and suddenly the Jews weren't the Christ-killing, plague-bearing, money-grubbing fifth column anymore. Suddenly, they were a nation, too. And the Jew haters needed a new reason to hate Jews. Without rehashing the history of the last 73 years, think about what we heard just these past three weeks, including from some so-called progressive members of Congress. These people defamed Israel as an apartheid state in what they seemed to think was a quest to murder as many Palestinian children as possible, instead of a restrained military operation tightly targeted on terrorists. But just like before, if you really believe that Jews, sorry, that Israel is murdering children left and right, then that actually is a very good reason to hate Jews. I mean Israel. These members of Congress, joined by a shocking number of celebrities, didn't call for violence, but they carved out an area of respectability for a certain type of anti-Semitism, and others were only too happy to rush in with their fists flying. It turns out, if you ignore all evidence turn Israel into the villain in your morality play, and insist that Americans have a responsibility to do something about Israel. The thing that they will do is beat up American Jews, throw rocks through the windows of American synagogues, and harass Jews who speak out on social media. This week, though, four Democrats stood up to the anti-Semitic rhetoric of a few of their colleagues. We should all applaud and be grateful for the moral clarity exhibited by Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, Elaine Luria of Virginia, Kathy Manning of North Carolina, and Dean Phillips of Minnesota. I'll be celebrating them at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. 
you can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.